This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 1. Please join me in welcoming uh, Lisa and thank you very much. Lisa, over to you. Thank you, Steve. So I'm just going to say it is it's super strange to know that you're all out there and I can't see you and I can't hear you. So I'm just going to imagine uh, a, a lot of a very kind of friendly, excited people at the beginning of this uh, really um, exciting uh, time, I guess, in many ways. It's, it's, it's obviously very anxiety provoking as well, but I think it is, it's really, I find it really exciting to see how uh, the constraints that we're having to live in now are kind of forcing us to be maybe more creative and, and more human in a lot of ways than, than maybe what we've done before. So I hope that wherever you are, you are keeping well and looking after everybody around you. Um, I was wondering when we do remote conferences, uh, how the how the welcome to country works. So I, I feel like I should give you a quick welcome to uh, my part of the country as well. So I'm speaking to you from Sydney, um, which is uh, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, uh, part of the world, they are the traditional custodians and I want to pay respects to their elders past, present and future as well. Uh, so I'm currently working from home. Uh, since last Thursday, my setup is not particularly fantastic, I have to say. I'm, I'm sitting at my kitchen bench right now um, with no second screen or anything like that. So I have my speaker's notes kind of here on printouts just in case I need them. I've sent these two boys, my sons, Ruben and Jude, they have gone to the dog park with the dog, which should buy me half an hour maybe of guaranteed quiet, but God knows what's going to happen after that. So you may you may get a cameo appearance at some point and, and, and my apologies or, or I probably shouldn't apologise. I apologise. It is how it is. My name is Lisa Reichel. Uh, as Steve said, I currently lead the research and insights team at Atlassian. I know that particularly in Australia, everybody kind of like knows that they know the name Atlassian. Lots of people don't really know what we do. Uh, so I thought it might be useful for you to know a little bit about that a tiny bit. We make software for teams who are collaborating together. Uh, and, and the mission at Atlassian is to unleash the potential of every team. Um, which I think is a really powerful mission and particularly interesting right now in our current times. And you might know us from such software as Jira, Confluence and Trello, and that's just a small number of products from the overall suite. Today, what I want to talk about is how can we unleash the potential of user research in our organizations? And particularly, how can we address some of the places where research can come a little bit unstuck, particularly as we're looking for opportunities to scale it? I don't know what it's like where you work, but certainly my experience has been since this guy started coming out and talking about customer obsession, things have kind of started to change a little bit. Where once it used to be a complete battleground all the time to, to get anybody to think about potentially involving customers in our process, we have many fewer fights these days about that. Instead, I feel like in a lot of places, we've started to shift to a new challenge. And that challenge is how do we meet the demand for all of the people who want to talk to all of the customers all of the time? And so we've started to kind of unlock this sort of new philosophical debate, perhaps, as to who should be doing this talking to customers? Whose, whose job is this? And there are some researchers, and um, I have to admit, I've quite a lot of empathy for them. They believe that the talking to customers, the research work should be being done by people who are trained and experienced in, in doing that work. So, so perhaps researchers should do that work. Now in some part of the world though, this is kind of a, a redundant question, uh, partly because there is just so much demand that we cannot hire enough researchers to meet that need, to meet that demand. I think it's quite a different story in Australia, though. I think we have a different issue here, which is that we still don't seem to actually train or hire specialist researchers. I, um, I did a little bit of research because I wanted to try and put a bit of uh, some, some numbers, some evidence behind this kind of feeling that I have. And so I thought, where better place to conduct some research than on LinkedIn? I ran a few searches on LinkedIn. And I started with the town that I lived in before I moved back to Sydney, which was London. So let's take a look at what it's like if you're trying to get a research job in London. This is um, 
a search for jobs that match user research posted in the last one week within 25 miles of central London. Uh, and you know, for context, let's let's say that London does have a population of 8.9 million, it's quite a big place. The 590 jobs came up, which just seems like an astounding number of roles to me. 590 jobs matched user research in London posted last week. And I'll just take a moment to look at the, at the kind of roles that we're talking about here, right? So they're the user experience research leads, leads, seniors, head. Um, these are like senior specialist research roles. So let's fly over to another part of the world. We're not fly. Let's like magically transport ourselves in a germ-free way uh, to San Francisco. And San Francisco is, is tiny. It only has about 800,000 people. So let's scale it out, zoom out to the whole Bay Area. Um, this has got a population of 7.7 .7 million people, but it's, it is a kind of special population. It has a lot of some of our best known tech companies, for example. So here we can see 602 jobs posted in the Bay Area in the last week. And again, I mean, take a look at the kind of roles that are available there right now. They're, they're, they're pretty nice looking roles and all like really specialist research roles. So now let's return to Sydney. Now, so if you didn't know, Sydney has a population, last year had a population of 5.2 million. So if London and San Francisco have, you know, roughly around 600 jobs last week and populations of about eight to nine million people, then what's your guess of what, how many jobs there might be for user researchers in Sydney posted last week? Would you say maybe about half that? So maybe 300 jobs, maybe a third, maybe 200 jobs. If you've been looking for a specialist uh, research role in Sydney in the last week or so, you will definitely know that that's absolutely not true. 48, 48 measly user research related jobs. And you can see from the top jobs here, we've got really quite flexible here on what qualifies as a user research role as well. So I think the reality that we, that we have here is that Still in Australia, we're not actually really taking research particularly seriously as a specialism. I know multiple people who have moved back to Sydney from abroad where they've had specialist research roles have been told by people uh, in our field here that you, know, you need to be able to be a designer in order to be able to do research work as well. I think that's kind of really disappointing. Um, I, I hope that we're kind of at the tipping point now of moving away from that and, and towards you know, more Taking, taking research a lot more seriously than we have previously. Um, so the, the context here is really quite different, I think, than it is in other parts of the world. So we need to ask a slightly different question here. Now, in the US and the UK, there's a huge amount of demand. They're trying to hire as many researchers as they can. They just can't do it. They are having to democratize in a lot of cases you know, by necessity. Here in Australia, it actually seems as though we deliberately don't specialize. We are democratizing by choice. So let's get back to that question then. Who should talk to customers? Whether it's by choice or by necessity, I think this has actually become kind of a redundant question. The question is not whether democratized research is good or bad, whether it should exist or not. Today, the reality is that designers, product managers, product marketing managers, all kinds of people in these organizations believe that it is part of their role to conduct research with customers and users. So they're not doing their job if they're not conducting research and talking to customers and users on a regular basis. So I think our starting premise has to be that more people being closer to customers and users will lead us, in theory, to better experiences, better products and better services being delivered. But it's not so simple as just getting closer to customers, just talking to customers, of course. When we're doing that, we have two very important jobs that we need to get done. The first thing is our old friend, empathy. Closeness to customers and users needs to help us build empathy. And the way that I think about this is it needs to help us have the ability to understand and share the feelings of our customers and users, but in particular, 
in various contexts, in a range of contexts that are really different to our own. This means that when we're thinking about design, we have this kind of like database of contexts that we can refer to. And we're more likely to avoid designing for ourselves, designing for our organizational context, designing you know, self-referentially. But in addition to that, our interaction with customers also needs to provide us with evidence. And evidence is obviously the, the facts and the information that indicate whether a belief or a proposition is true or valid. This is the knowledge that helps us drive forward. It helps us to make decisions. But my experience is that these two very different jobs require very different interactions, very different work efforts, very different skill sets, but they're very often conflated in our organizations. And this lack of appreciation for these two very different jobs that research has to do creates the preconditions, I think, for the five dysfunctions that I want to talk about today. The five dysfunctions of democratized research or how research gets a bit wobbly when you try to scale it. So let's start with dysfunction number one. And I call this one the speed dysfunction. I expect this one will be quite familiar to many of you. I wonder how many of us consider ourselves to be working in an engineering driven organization. You know that you're working in an engineering driven organization because it's kind of tacit knowledge in the organization that the real work, the important work is done by the engineers or the developers and any work that precedes the writing of code is just thought of as basically adding time between when we've had a great idea and when we could ship. And this is the reality for many of us today. Speed really matters. In software teams around the world, designers are really racing to feed an engineering machine to get the new features shipped to achieve product market fit. And although many teams will make the claim that they're being evidence-driven, they're being data-driven, they're being customer-obsessed, how often are we hearing questions raised about the quality of the research, about the quality of the resulting evidence? I'm going to say not so often. And so as a result, teams are pleasing their stakeholders by taking the fastest and most effortless approach. And this quest for speed means that we're making trade-offs. But where are these trade-offs happening? And do they really matter? The first place that you'll often see a quality trade-off is in recruitment, the selection of who gets to participate in the study. And quality research really relies on ensuring that our research participants are realistic, that they have the relevant experiences, that they're able to give the feedback and to behave in a way that might be representative of many other similar users in our audience. And sometimes, as I'm sure you know, getting the right participants into your study can be really hard work. So this is particularly true if you're working in a business-to-business -business environment. Recruitment can be very time-consuming. Sometimes it can take several weeks to actually get the right participants lined up at the volumes that you need to participate in a study. And so, unsurprisingly, a lot of teams choose to compromise on the realism of the participants, and they might do this in one of two ways that I've seen. One is that you just simply relax the recruit brief. You just be less fussy about who you involve in the research. And the second one, which is, I think, a more recent one, is that we be less fussy about where we recruit from. So I think we have a lot of online panels now that, that come with some of our online tools. And, you know, I think some of these panels are subject to what we might call misrepresentation or, or people being very clever at making their way through screeners successfully, even if that's not necessarily an entirely honest representation of who they are. Now, we can just call this pragmatism. We can say, look, we will get to run the research more quickly if we're less fussy about who participates. And that's definitely a valid argument. Another part of the research process that often uh, can be really time consuming is the analysis and the synthesis phase. Mm -hmm. So old school researchers like myself had a rule of thumb when we were growing up as baby researchers. And we were told that you should be allowing two hours of analysis for every one hour of research right now. 
I, if I could see you all, I would, I would ask anybody to kind of put their hand up and, and do like a crazy happy dance if you ever actually get this amount of, of time to be able to do your analysis. It's, it's pretty unusual these days. And so instead we see these kind of much scrappier, much leaner approaches, which often will look like, you know, you have a participant, you take a couple of bullet points, maybe you get a verbatim or two, and then at the end of all of the sessions, you kind of do a huddle with the team, you debrief, you compare notes, you decide what to do, and then you move forward. But what are the implications of the trade-offs that we're making? The trade-offs that we make for recruitment and the trade-offs that we're making for analysis and synthesis. These, these things that we're doing to try to help us move more quickly forward. Are we being thoughtful about what we're putting at risk when we make these trade-offs? Let's talk about recruitment first. So one thing that we want to know about research participants, I'm sure you already know it, is that they really want to play along. Like no matter what you ask them to tell you or to do, they're very likely to have a really good crack at it. And so this is something that I see alarmingly frequently. From the team's point of view, this is a wonderful way to save time. You've got questions for developers and product managers. So you get a developer in, ask them all the dev questions, and then at the end, you get them to imagine that they're a product manager doing sprint planning. Because I'm sure they've seen it before in their team, right? So they could probably have a pretty fair crack at this. But what am I as a researcher going to do with data from a developer who is pretending to be a product manager doing sprint planning? How, how much should I be trusting this? I'm going to say, despite the developer trying their absolute hardest and doing their very best impression of a product manager, I personally wouldn't trust this data too much. I wouldn't put a huge amount of confidence in these responses. So you can see if you have a study that's populated with people answering questions and performing tasks that are actually really intended for different people, you're potentially entirely compromising your study and, and rendering it effectively invalid. What about analysis and synthesis? What trade-offs are we looking at by not giving that the time and attention that we'd like to? Well, the processes that are associated with analysis and synthesis bring us many benefits. They bring great value to this process. For example, they help to make sure that we really glean everything that there is to learn from that study. So we're reducing waste and we're increasing learning. But they also play another really important role. These methods help us to counteract some of the more powerful cognitive biases, things like confirmation bias and recency effect. And as we know, cognitive biases are literally shortcuts. These are our brains trying to help us go faster, which is great, except it can also have a really counterproductive effect when it comes to processing research data. Because without taking the time to do this proper analysis, it can be really easy for teams to distort their research data, to validate the assumptions and beliefs that they had coming into the study. We can find teams paying attention only to the most obvious findings, or the most eloquent participants, or things that they've discovered that are most palatable to stakeholders. So we find that by skipping or rushing the analysis phase, we can lead ourselves to really biased outcomes in the research. Now, none of this is to say that there is no room for compromise at all. Of course, there has to be. But the important thing is that when we're making these trade-offs, we're aware of the compromises, we're aware of the risks, we're taking informed decisions. So what can we do to mitigate this speed dysfunction? There are three things that, that I've tried that, that have worked quite well. The first is planning. I think it's easy for us to assume that people are deliberately shortcutting the processes when in, in actual fact, a lot of the time, they just don't actually really understand what good looks like. So helping teams to really understand what does a really thorough recruitment process look like? What does a really thorough analysis process look like? How much time? What are the steps? that can help them actually have the option of, of including that as a part of their process. And what I found is that when you really set people through what this looks like, then they can, they, they will, they will sort of scale down from, from a much larger point than they were before. So, you know, instead of going, well, we only need a day for this, you might actually get a week, for example. And so really helping people to make sure that they understand like what this process is and to help plan it in and, and providing templates for research project planning can be a really useful way to achieve that. 
The second thing is just simply make it easier, make it easier to recruit the right way. Make it, give, give really clear guidelines about, about how we want people to work. With things like analysis, it can be just as simple as like, do we have enough space to do this properly? Um, and then finally, education. So this is really all about helping teams to make informed decisions, helping them to, to understand the risks that they're introducing and then to take those risks knowingly. Uh, this, can be, this can be really important in helping to sort of empower them to take appropriate risks, you know, unknowing. Okay, dysfunction number two. This one is called the silo dysfunction. And I'm gonna guess this one might be fairly familiar to many of you as well. I'm gonna illustrate this one with a picture. I wonder if you, I know you can't, but if you could, I wonder what you would tell me this scary sea animal might be. Who guessed duck? Nobody ever guesses duck unless they've seen it before. This is a really important picture that I try to keep in mind all the time when I'm doing research, especially when I'm feeling kind of the, the pressures of, of teams wanting to have greater acceleration and greater focus. I always want to ask myself, are we getting enough of the picture to know what's really going on, to, to be able to make a good decision? Are we accidentally looking at the shadow instead of looking at the dark? Are we examining the cause or the effect? So imagine that your team is tasked with designing a chair. Would it be one of these beauties? Or perhaps one of these, looking about as empty as they'd be right now. Could be a chair for this or this. Or maybe one of these. These are all chairs, right? They, they all have to let you sit in them but the context that they're in demands this whole secondary set of requirements that could render them next to useless if not considered. And it's exactly the same when it comes to features. This is another kind of more eloquent way of saying it. You know, always design a thing by considering it in its next largest context. So a chair in a room, a room in a house, a house in an environment, an environment in a city plan. The context that we're designing for is incredibly important. And it's important that designers and people that we're working with on our teams care about this context as well as the feature they've been tasked with. Even if they can't control the context, even if they don't own that context, even if stuff in that context belongs to other teams, we still need to care about it and be interested in it. Uh, Noah, who's a, a senior product guy where I work, he says it differently. He says, you're working so hard designing that light switch, but you're not sure if you're designing it for a room or a car. I mean, it really brings to life how easy it is to, to get hyper-focused on, on things and, and, and potentially get it completely wrong because of that huge amount of focus. So when we're working with the JIRA team, you know, we're saying to them, this is your room to the chair. This is your duck and not the shadow because it matters what people do when they're away from their screens and when they're not using the product. It's, it's really easy for the team who are working on improving Jira to forget that many, many of their customers and users have this kind of stuff all over their walls. And there is a relationship between this data and their software. It's important to understand that the teams using their software have these kind of meetings and that there are no laptops out. And to understand how these kinds of, of, of meetings in these situations relate to their product. This is kind of thick, messy, imprecise data, but it's context, it's important. It helps us to design better products. Why is this relevant to research? Well, because of human behavior, because of the query effect. And Jacob Nielsen says, you know, people can make up an opinion about anything and they'll do so if asked. You can thus get users to comment at great length about something that doesn't matter and which they wouldn't have given a second thought to if left to their own devices. We, we know that, that people will give us information. And so how we frame our questioning, how we frame our research, the breadth that we give it, whether we focus in on the feature or whether we look at the broader context is going to influence what information we get back from, from the people we're doing research with as a result. This is really, really important, particularly for feature teams who are often really tempted and, and, and sometimes even encouraged to just focus on their knitting, focus on your thing. 
trust that everybody else understands everything else. But that laser focus can bring real problems when it comes to research, because we'll often find people who will happily tell us about the future and answer our questions, but they may only be talking to us because we asked, not because they really care, not because they think that it's important, and, and they won't often tell us that they don't think it's important. And we can miss out on a lot of really critical information because it's kind of out of scope for our team. So let's take a look at these silo trade-offs that we're making as part of the silo dysfunction. First of all, we have this laser focus. So we're focusing only on the things that belong to that team that's within their scope that they can do something about. And I actually think that a lot of the times this is what teams mean when they talk about actionable insights. They don't mean, is this an, uh, an insight that, that could be acted on? They mean, is this an insight that this team, that we can act on right now? Um, and, and researchers often very much encouraged towards actionable insights, bringing back things that this team can work on right now. And this is often perceived as efficiency, as a way of really helping the teams to go faster. And then the other thing that we often see with these teams is that they are really looking for definitive answers, or another word for that might be validation. The team are really looking for signals that they're on the right pathway to how they're looking to deliver the feature. They're not really in the market for more questions. They don't really want anything that could confuse the issue or extend the scope. They want to get the job done. The problem is that research that is too focused, focused too tightly in on a product or a feature massively increases the risk of a false positive result. And a false positive result is a research result that wrongly indicates that a particular conditional attribute is present. It helps us think that something is going to go right when it actually won't. It undermines the reliability of our evidence. And we see plenty of this in formative research, but even more interestingly for me, I think we see it a lot in usability testing, that if we do usability testing on really tightly focused features, we often tend to see much more positive results than if we were testing that feature in a much more realistic context. And false positives are hugely problematic because they lead teams to believe that there's a greater success rate or greater demand for their product or feature than actually the case. And on top of that, they believe that they're taking a user-centered, evidence-based approach. So what's our mitigation? This is a guy called Liam Maxwell. He was the CTO of the UK government back when I was working there. And he had this kind of famous, famous amongst the UK government circles phone case that he would pull out whenever we were in a meeting that where the focus just got too much on the solution and too far away from the need that we were seeking to meet. And I think that this question is the best mitigation for silo dysfunction. If we can look to really balance this laser focus on the features with a rich understanding of the underlying user need, we can create a really effective counterbalance. We can decrease the risk of our false positives. And we can do this by introducing the expectation or, or perhaps the requirement for every team to be able to speak with knowledge and with evidence about the user need that lies behind the feature. We want people to be able to answer, you know, what is the user need that this feature is contributing towards resolving? And you have to be careful with the answer. You have to make sure that the answer doesn't have the name of the feature in it, because that's a common cheat. Um, what, what, what is the user need that status updating is trying to meet? Well, it's trying to meet the need for status updating. That, that's not actually the correct answer. Okay? There has to be. Uh, an answer that doesn't involve your feature. And then the other thing that we always want to ask is, have we actually seen this in the customers that we've met? Let's talk about examples of where we've seen this need being experienced and how the way that we're looking to solve it might help these particular people. Okay, on to dysfunction three. And now we're going to talk about using research as a weapon. I wonder how many of you have experienced this. I think it was about a year ago, maybe about 12 months ago, my research operations team were reaching breaking point. In particular, the research recruiters were like about to implode or just go home and not come back again. They were completely overwhelmed by recruiting studies from all over the organization. 
And so we kind of dug in and had a look at all of this work that was being requested. Like, why? Why were there so many studies being requested? And we found this big chunk of work that was very micro-focused. It was things like, does this icon work better than that icon in the navigation? Does this date picker work better than that date picker? So very hyper-focused feature-related uh, research, like, like we've just been talking about. So I went and had a chat to some of our design managers because I wanted to understand like, why, why was this kind of work being commissioned? And one design manager explained it to me this way. She said, the thing is, Lisa, the designers are not being trusted unless they bring data to the table. So we discovered this, this group of teams where there was this almost combative relationship between the designer and the product manager. They both had pretty strong ideas about how the design should be being executed, and they were regularly doing battle to see who would win. For some teams, it had come to the point where the main thing that they talked about when they talked about design was data, the research evidence. But there were some very familiar problems with this research. It had to be done quickly because it couldn't possibly delay the team. It had to be extremely focused on the feature at hand. So we had both the silo and the speed dysfunctions in play with all of the problems that they introduced. But we also had another problem. We found that designers seemed to be losing the ability to talk about their design. We were trying to win design arguments with graphs and with tables instead of being able to talk about the design decisions in a way that was understandable and defensible and deliberate. So our product design craft and our research crafts join forces to try to address this problem. And here are some of the things that we do to try to remove this kind of crutch of research and, and make the team relationships a, a lot less combative. We use exposure hours. So we try to make sure that everybody in the teams is seeing the reality of what it's like to use the product on a really regular basis. We do design critique coaching. So we're coaching designers to build this muscle of giving and receiving questions and feedback on the design work more effectively. We talk a lot about risk. Does this decision actually really need its own specific research project? Are there other ways that we could be reducing risk? Or is the risk so low that we should probably just ship and learn? We're looking at heuristics and conventions. Now, I was really surprised that um, like, you know, lots of designers actually really don't know about design heuristics. And, and ones that do, I actually had some designers tell me that they were outdated because they looked up the Norman Nielsen heuristics um, and they were from the 90s. And so they couldn't possibly have a place in our practice these days. But I'm, as I'm sure you understand, there's, there's so much that we can learn from and lean on and rely on from work that has preceded us over the over the decades prior. And finally, we talked about end-to-end -end journeys. We had uh, we tried to put the, the work that the team was thinking about in the context of a larger end-to-end -end journey. And I think it is this end-to-end -end journey that is possibly the most powerful mitigation against weaponizing research. And the reason for that is that it helps us actually keep teams' eyes on the bigger picture. I found that too often we go to war over the finer details. So we're picking out like one aspect of the design and, and really kind of focusing on that. Meanwhile, incredibly important details uh, or, or other aspects of the journey are, are causing enormous harm to our customers and our, and our business. And, and nobody is, is looking at or attending that. And it is going back to silos, often in those gaps between the silos in the journey. So aligning on and focusing on these end-to-end -end journeys can really help to make sure that we have shared priorities and that we're clear that we're focusing and working on and, and prioritizing the most important things. It also helps keep us really connected to the customer purpose, the overall goal that our customers are trying to achieve. Now, one of the ways that we've started doing this at Atlassian is to change the way that we do demos. So instead of just being able to pop up and, and demo the particular feature that you're working on and get lots of claps for shipping that. Now, what we do is we make sure that teams are demoing the end-to-end -end journey. So we're showing how the feature that they've been working on fits into the overall flow. And we're talking about the user context. We're talking about the goals, what the user's trying to achieve in this process as well. 
And we do this even if it means we're demoing work that other people or even other teams have done, which is a pretty radical concept, surprisingly. But what we found is that there's, there's a double win from this as well, because if, we have, if, we're, if we're really focusing on these end-to-end -end journeys and we're doing research that looks at these end-to-end -end journeys, then this actually creates the environment for us to do more efficient research more realistic research and ultimately to get more reliable research outcomes. So there's a lot to be gained from shifting the focus from that specific tiny thing that teams are interested in to understanding it in the context of the end-to-end -end journey and the goal. Okay, dysfunction number four, quantitative fallacy. You may not have heard of quantitative fallacy before, perhaps you have, you've almost certainly experienced it. I want to um, I want to get Lord Kelvin, who devised the absolute temperature scale, to attempt to explain it to us. And Kelvin says, "I often say that when you can measure what you're speaking about and express it in numbers, you know something about it. But when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is of a meagre and unsatisfactory kind." I don't think Lord Kelvin would have gotten on particularly well with qualitative researchers. It's probably the perfect thing to say to piss them all off. But I think it is true to admit that there seems to be an intuition that we humans have that knowledge that is unable to be expressed numerically is less satisfactory than knowledge that fits onto a graph. All right. Quantitative data is exceptionally attractive to organization because it creates this sense of both reliability and expediency. And that is pretty much surveys in a nutshell, I think. Uh, there's an amazing uh, essay that Erica Hall did called On Surveys. And, and in that, she describes surveys as an attractive nuisance you know, and a hazardous, hazardous object likely to attract those who are unable to appreciate the risk posed by the object. And surveys are extremely popular uh, in organizations because they do two of the things that organizations love the best. They give numbers and they do it quickly. And surveys in and of themselves are not inherently bad. When they're done well, they can be an extremely powerful research method. But the problem is that doing surveys well is actually hard work and actually takes time. It requires an awful lot more than just agreeing on a bunch of questions and banging them into a survey monkey form. Getting the question right, for example, is absolutely critical to the reliability of our data. But very few people put any real effort into ensuring that they do, in fact, have good survey questions. So for those of you who are involved in doing surveys in your work, I wonder whether cognitive interviewing is something that's part of your practice. This is a method that's very common in academia, but extremely scarce in commercial design research work. And this is the kind of research work that we need to do to feel confident that our survey questions are being understood and answered in the way that we intend. So this is critical for data quality. But why do we tend not to do this work? Is it ignorance? Do we actually not know as much about surveys as we thought we did? Do we just have blind faith? Do we just believe that our survey respondents will make sense of the questions in the same way as us? Or do we actually not really care so much about the validity? Whatever the answer to that, the reality is that numbers hog the limelight. They get the attention of our senior stakeholders. I did a presentation to our senior leadership uh, not that long ago. It was full of little videos and verbatims and all sorts of nuanced insights. And it had a number, actually had two numbers in it. Um, after that presentation, every single person who came back to me and gave me feedback and wanted to talk to me about my presentation talked about the number. That was the one thing that really resonated with them and stayed with them. Many people are much less comfortable with ambiguity than, than we are. Uh, they're typically, people are, are very typically kind of much more comfortable with a boldly stated number than they are with a verbatim or two. What do we do about this? How do we reconcile this organizational demand for quantification 
with the knowledge that the richer picture of qualitative research is crucial for good product and service design. How do we get organizations to care about that too? Well, my strategy with this one basically is just to roll with it. We, we lean on good practice in research and we use mixed methods. So in my research team at Atlassian, we've uh, really invested in our survey team. We have a, a good, strong team of people who work exclusively on survey work. They're mostly people who have come from a market research background, so they can design great surveys and they're excellent at quantitative analysis. They're very good at stats and numbers. Um, and our surveys in the organization now are some of the best known outputs from our team. They get the attention from the very top all the way down. This work has really helped to build visibility and credibility across the organization. And we also work really closely with our product analysts and our data scientists and make use of their numbers to help make the points we're trying to make resonate more strongly within the organization. We use these numbers to open the door to a much more nuanced and complex conversation that we can have supported by the qualitative work that we're doing. All right, dysfunction five, the very last one. And this one I call failure to thrive. I'm sure that many of you will know this guy. This is Steve Krug. He wrote one of the seminal books on usability testing, which is called Don't Make Me Think. And that book was written 20 years ago in the year 2000, How Time Flies. Now, Steve has spent a lot of his life encouraging organizations to take their very first steps into usability testing. He goes out of his way to make it seem easy to do and not scary. And so his advice is testing one user is 100% better than testing none. Now, I know there are a lot of people in my surveys team who would argue with that maths, but we won't get into that today. Steve is not alone. There are a lot of people in our design and research community who are similarly encouraging people, no matter what their background or their training, to try doing some research. There are plenty of people who think this is a terrible idea, but I think the really important thing to understand here is the context, because Steve is not giving this advice to organizations who have mature human-centered design processes. This is advice for organizations who are scared to get started. This is the advice that gets them on the first step of the journey. And the question is, what happens next? I'm pretty sure that I can speak for Steve to say it's not his intention that doing usability testing with one person is the approach that he would recommend for an organization forevermore. Rather, what he's hoping is that people will see the benefits, they'll get excited about the opportunity, and so they will want to continue to grow in their knowledge and their capability when it comes to research. When it comes to maturing research capability, I have a little model that I've been playing with to try to think about that. It starts a lot, I think, with what is our organization's approach to human-centered design. And a really common place to start is with what I call customer-led. And so this is where we are listening to our customers' feedback and we are taking their advice and feedback literally. So if they tell us that we need to add this new widget to the app, that is precisely what we do. It is really easy to get trapped in this stage because at the time that you're doing it, it just seems completely logical. Like what on earth could be any more user-centered than giving somebody what they ask for? Then a couple of designers uh, join the organization and, and, and they, they press the organization to mature into what we might call the customer-involved stage. So, here we start to see a more deliberate approach to research. So we're seeing customer interviews, often usability testing and other techniques. You know, basically we're starting to involve our customers in the design and development process. But we're still doing it in a way that's very much centered on our product or on the widget that the customer has requested. We haven't yet got to the final stage of maturity, which is being customer experience led. And this is where we're really truly seeking to deeply understand our customers and their needs so that we can identify and design what is the best solution in response to that. All right, and then on our left axis, oops, sorry, skipping ahead. On our left axis, we've got you know, some stages of, of research maturity ranging through from 
ignorance, fear, to enthusiasm and capability. So let's look at how this plays out in combination. Pretty obviously, if you have a lot of ignorance about research, you don't really know much about it, you're pretty likely to have not enough research going on. That's not really a surprise. What can be surprising though, and we touched on this when we talked about weaponizing research, it is not uncommon for teams to progress up to enthusiasm without, without maturing their approach to human-centered design. So what we can see here is, is a lot of research going on, but not the kind of research that's actually really advancing our understanding and our ability to deliver good products. So it's important, I think, to, to be conscious that the volume of research going on in an organization doesn't necessarily mean that we have a high maturity organization. Instead, what we really want is to see this pathway through both increased research maturity and increased maturity in our human-centered design approach until we progress up to a gold star of research maturity. And what we're really looking for here is a balance, I think, of, of of balancing methods, and also we're looking for some bravery. So we're trying to make sure that we've got the right mix of methods being applied at the right times. But we also wanna be hearing strong and coherent opinions about the direction and the priorities for the product. And so if we have a high research maturity in an organization that's doing human-centered design in a mature way, we're gonna see the generation of both empathy and evidence. And both of these things are crucial to supporting organizations who wanna design great experiences and shift those efficiently. If, however, you have been in the situation of trying to advocate for greater maturity in research approaches, you have almost certainly had this objection. But Lisa, the design, the research doesn't have to be perfect. This is not an academic study, you know. I just need enough to be able to help me make a decision. And again, I think it's this mindset that, that, that kicks into play as well when we're thinking back to speed dysfunction. What do we do? What do we do when we get an objection like this? It, it can be a really tricky one to answer. I think the mitigation here, the, the ultimate mitigation when it comes to the failure to thrive dysfunction is framing research around risk management. So matching method to risk. We'll never get to do all the research that we would like to do and we'll never get to do it in the way that we would perfectly love to do it most of the time. But I think that's what's really important is for us to be able to understand like when does it really count? When do we really need to try hard? To, to, to emphasize doing things well and, and when can we sort of take the foot off the pedal a little bit. How can, we, um, how can we reduce risk to the organization? And when I'm talking about the role of the research team at Atlassian to our, to our senior stakeholders, a lot of the time that's what I'm talking about is, is risk mitigation, which is often not what they're expecting. They're expecting all of the empathy and kind of warm fuzzies and I come in talking about risk. It actually works quite well. And so I have this simple two by two that, that, I'm, that I'm using to try, try to talk about how we think about the level of investment that we're putting into the research that we're doing. So we're really asking ourselves, what is the level of risk that we're taking on? Like what will happen if we get this wrong? How bad will it be? And then we're also looking at knowledge. Like how much really do we know about this? Is this, is this a really well-known area? Uh, and this could be not only what do we know in the organization, it could be you know, coming back to sort of heuristics and conventions. Like do we actually as an industry, as a design and research part, do we know a lot about this generically? And so we can plot the project that we're talking about onto this two by two and end up with very different research approaches. So if we have something that's reasonably low risk, and we have a reasonably high amount of knowledge about it, this is a situation where we could say, look, let's just make a hypothesis about what we think is gonna happen. Let's ship it, and then let's learn from the product data and the feedback that we get. Completely adequate and appropriate approach to research in that case. But then in other areas where the risk is really high, where we really do need to get it right, but we don't know huge amounts about it, then we want to really invest a lot more in doing a much larger 
discovery effort to help build the confidence and understanding that we need in order to increase the likelihood of getting it right. Okay, those are our five dysfunctions. Let's just go back over them quickly because I know it's been some time since the beginning. Dysfunction number one was a speed dysfunction. We talked here about teams need to feel as though they're moving quickly, but how by helping them understand how to plan research, by making good behaviors easier, and by educating them to understand the risks that they're potentially taking, these can be very helpful in helping teams make better choices about research. We talked about the silo dysfunction. We talked about the false positives that often emerge from overly focusing on a feature and how important balancing that with understanding and talking about the underlying user need can be to mitigate that risk. We talked about weaponizing research. We talked about how research can become a weapon in design decision-making and how that can undermine the ability for teams to have good discussions, to talk well about design and how by focusing on end-to-end -end journeys and that, and that overall goal that our customers and users are trying to get to, this can really help teams to make sure they're not over-indexing on unimportant decisions and can lead to much better quality research as well. We talked about quantitative fallacy, about how organizations love numbers, about how doing surveys is actually harder than it might first seem, but how we need to win attention and credibilities with numbers. And then that allows us to follow through with the stories. And finally, we talked about how often research fails to mature in organizations and how we can use a risk framing to try to make sure that we're doing the right kind of work and the right quality of work in the right kinds of places. So that's it. I think there are plenty of ways for scaling and democratizing research to go very, very wrong. But I also believe that in our teams, we already have many of the tools that we need that we can put into play to help research be much more effective, much better quality, and much greater value to the organization. Thank you. I'm going to attempt to stop sharing. Thank you, Lisa. Look at my mouse. There it is. There we yeah. go. Wonderful. Thank you very much. We have a, a few questions, so let me um, take them, take you through them in order. The first question we had was: Are there any uh, platforms or agencies that you would recommend for recruiting reliable participants? Putting, uh, putting so, you on the spot with a, with a recommendation there. Go. Yeah, I need to just select my research ops team and see who we've got at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think the thing for us is that we work really hard not to rely on one single channel, one single one single um, uh, contact for, for our recruiting. So we do a lot of B2B work, so we do a lot of work with our own internal lists, which is super important. And then we have a wide range of partners that we work with. And some of them will be really great at some kinds of recruits and others will be really great at other kinds of recruits. Um, so I think, I think that would be my best advice is actually to have a range of different channels for recruitment that you can use. Uh, and then that gives you the opportunity to uh, optimize for the kind of recruit that you're doing to the channels that do it well. And it also reduces the risk that if one of them is failing to do it, you'll, you're stuck with no options. So it gives you a bit of option to sort of move from a plan A to plan B or C if you need to. Great. Um, it would be remiss of me to not mention at this point that one of our sponsors, Askable, provides a platform for remote recruiting of participants. Um, they are... Um, uh, a, a platform that uh, we use at Meld Studios for some of our recruitment uh, needs. They're not the only ones that we, we use. As uh, Lisa mentioned, it's, it's good to have um, a variety of people coming at the problem from different uh, perspectives. Um, our next question is around, um, let me, uh, like, so in an organisation where research has already been democratised, i.e. continuous discovery, how would you go about convincing upper management to allow UX research the respect and attention it deserves? 
I don't think you can ask anyone for respect or attention, actually. I think you have to do things that that achieve that for yourself. So I think we need to we need to be really um, we, yeah, it's, it's on us. So if we're failing to get the buy-in that we think we deserve, then we need to have a good hard look at what we're doing and how we're doing it uh, and think about what we need to do in order to uh, meet that need more effectively. So from my point of view, like I never thought that um, that we would kind of lead the charge in our organization through surveys, but uh, then I inherited uh, the MPS team, which, you know, is a, is a mixed blessing, right? And so that that became an opportunity to go, okay, well, here's a number that the organization really cares about. How can we transform the way that we're capturing that into something that I can feel proud of, that I feel like we're doing a really good job of, but is actually going to be really appealing to this whole other uh, part of the organization as well. So I think it's it's incumbent on us to, to have empathy, not only for our customers and users, but also internally understanding amongst our stakeholders, what will get um, what will get their attention? What will get them interested? What will what will get you invited to the meetings and, and, and have people asking for your opinions on things? And to have flexibility in the way that you approach that so that you can be effective. Hmm. I think it, it's, an, it's an interesting challenge there to switch that around and say, what are they not seeing from us that's leading them to not provide us with that respect and to not provide us with that attention. So what, what do they need from us for us to, to earn it, to, to prove that to them? Um, uh, another question that's come through um, around, uh, do you have any uh, case studies or cognitive interview examples that you can share? That might be something that you post uh, later on for us rather than trying to address that now, but do you do you have any? Um, I don't have any that are publicly available, but I'm pretty sure we could put something together reasonably soon um, And I would be very happy to share that out with the community once we do that It's um, yeah, I mean, there's also there's tons tons of information online If you do some googling you'll find some pretty kind of easy instructions as to as to how to approach it, but yeah, we, I, 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 um, I can get my team to write up a case study and, and we can share that out Okay. If that would be helpful. Uh, there's a question through from Sakitha asking, um, how do you teach the company to go back to objectives and think about the research question at hand beforehand? Oh, I don't know. I, I think, I don't know if you can do it beforehand. So when I'm working with a large organization, I, the, the metaphor that I always use is kind of like a train set. That there's, there's train system there's there's, the, there's always trains hopping around all over the place they're all everything's moving there's lots of stuff happening nobody is going to stop nobody's going to stop for us right so i think it's really you have to pick which of those trains you want to get on and focus on and then you need to understand like what's going on for those teams right now and 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 the 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 desire to do this needs to come from the team needs to come from from um from the you know the executive the stakeholders that you're working with so, um, so I, I, again, like I think it's really like for me, trying to provoke questions is incredibly powerful. Like, mm. how can we put things in front of people that make them ask questions that then they are going to want to answer? How do we get them to ask the questions that we want them to ask? And I think that's that is that's that's kind of like our, our our big challenge there, is we can go in and just go, look, hey, these are the questions you need to answer and say it louder and louder and louder and in six different formats, it doesn't work. Um, we need to try to, to provoke the opportunity for people to start asking questions of themselves. Mm. Now, a lot of the times this means that, that we might go and kind of conduct some research ourselves that nobody has commissioned, um, that we just, you know, we, we go, we go and, 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 and try to capture situations that we know will elicit these questions and, and play them back and go, hey, I've got this really interesting thing. What, what, what do you think is going on here? Like, you know, acting a little bit kind of naive can sometimes be, be super useful. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think we've had a fair bit of success there where we can go, look, we're seeing this thing. It looks really interesting. What do you think is going on here? And people are like, wow, well, you know, we really, really need to get to the bottom of that. Like how quickly, how quickly can we get to the bottom of that? It's always how quickly. Um, but I think that's, that's what I'm thinking about. It's like, what can I do to help provoke those questions in other people rather than me trying to bang on and say, please, can we answer this question? Like yep. they need to be engaged and interested. Um, a potentially um, provocative question 
for the designers in the room, but a question from Charlie asking, how do we mitigate against designers selecting findings to support their work? Yeah, excellent. Um, I think I think this is this is part of the whole weaponizing thing, right? It, it is, it's 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 using research solely for the purpose of winning the fight, um, and and it, it happens a lot, um, and and it usually comes from some really kind of poor research as well. But I think you know, it for me, if you are staying close to the end-to-end -end journey, if you're staying close to what the actual real need is. Um, and, and you're educating the team in both end-to-end -end journeys and, and the goals and the needs, then, then hopefully the team will start calling the, the designer on that. Mm. Um, but again, like it, there's, there's this huge temptation, absolutely huge temptation for people just to you know, bang out a really quick study and go, look, A worked better than B, so therefore we should ship A. Um, it's, it's, very, yeah. it's very common. There's a, a question from Emma asking, how did you transform the NPS? You mentioned that you inherited it, um, for better yeah. or worse. How did you transform the NPS? So we did a lot of stuff, actually. When I first started, NPS was the little pop-up that would happen in product. So as people were trying to get their jobs done in JIRA, JIRA would pop up and go, hey, how much would you recommend us to a friend? And I mean, you can kind of imagine some of the language that we got back in response to that question. Um, uh, and, and also it was a live number. We, we surveyed uh, so many people and that number would bounce up and down all the time. And then huge amounts of time was spent in the team trying to understand like, why, why is the number bouncing? Why is it bigger yesterday than, yeah, than, 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 than the day before? Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible in lots of different ways. We, um, we completely changed it. So we do still capture NPS, but now we capture it using the HATS, the Happiness Tracking Survey framework that was developed out of Google. Mm -hmm. um, and we've taken it out of product almost entirely. And um, now we actually survey by email. And so what this means is that we can have a much greater control over the sample that we're surveying. So we can be much, much more uh, confident about the, the any changes in the numbers being because of you know changes in perception and not changes in you know our sampling methodology mm. um, and also by taking it into email it means that um, we're able to ask more questions so we have a, a lot of really interesting cuts through the data now that we didn't have previously um, and people take the time to give us really long creative beautiful thought out responses to the open-ended questions as well in a way that they didn't do in product so it, it's been like a mix of, uh, of changing the methodology um, and, and changing sampling design, all that kind of stuff. And then we also completely changed the analysis process as well. So with our, um, with our HAT study, we, we, do, we, we, we do monthly updates on numbers, but we do big quarterly reports. And when we do those quarterly reports, we actually get a, a whole lot of that survey data and we write it out on post-it notes and we have the whole team come in and do like a proper analysis process. And lots of people are, are always saying to us, you know, surely there's a faster way to do this. And again, it's like pushing back on that speed thing and going, well, there might be faster ways to do it, but you know, for us to get close to the data and to really understand what it's telling us and to get away from just simply, you know, matching and counting keywords into, you know, getting behind what the need is, this is, this is the best way to do it. So it's been, it's been kind of transformed on, on many different fronts. Okay. Um, I have another question here, which, which may be um, sort of asking you to reach back into the, the, the past a little bit, but um, how do you plan and help advocate for research with a low budget? Of course, you have enormous budgets now. <laughs> not always, not always. No, some, some teams have lots of money and some teams don't, and often yeah. it depends on what time of the year it is as well as to how much mm. money you have. Um, advocating for teams who have got low budgets. Um, I think that, the, that you probably what you want to try to do is to try to set up um, some kind of of a of a continuous process, so you're working less in a in a study-based format, and you are just kind of trying to gradually build your knowledge over time by um, by bringing people in to be a part of, of of research. You know, in maybe maybe not super frequently, but but kind of over time. 
um, so that you know you, you might not be able to do a study where you have 20 people come in and, and you know do the interviews or you go out and do you know a whole series of contextual studies but you know you can set up this program that's kind of like running in the background and then after some time you can go okay now we've got this many people and we can do some analysis and we can bring some findings back from that i think that can be a useful way to do it hmm. i think that um you want to be careful to not think to yourself that because i have no budget i have to use low-cost tools so i have to go to the kinds of tools that let me do things online and cheaply and automatically and all that kind of thing. I think that can be a bit of a dangerous path to go down. So I would think about like, how can you actually slow it down and build up this knowledge over time and, and do it sort of thoughtfully, but potentially in the background. Hmm. Okay. Um, we've got a, a few more minutes. So I think sort of two questions. The first um, is how do you advocate for a separate design researcher role or discipline within a, um, a company to a group of people who think that the research should be done by the designers who also do the layout and the wireframing and flows and whatever else might be going on? Um, so I think, I think one way to do it is to really lay out for people all of those. So if we go back to speed dysfunction and we look at you know things like recruiting and things like analysis and those things that are really quite time consuming um, and would be very difficult for a designer to do on top of their job and be productive. And we talk about, you know, what risks are we introducing by not doing that? Um, that can be quite a powerful way of, of doing it. Um, that's probably the, the most useful way, I think, to advocate is just to, to really help again, like risk, risk can be a really useful way of talking about these things. Yeah. So I think if we if we kind of really focus in on that and, and go, well, what are we not doing and what risk is that introducing and what value might we get from having that? Um, that, that, can be, that can be a useful way to have that conversation. Yep. Okay. And the last question from Benson. Um, can you please share who decides how much knowledge or risk they think they have? Um, ideally, it's the team, right? So we, we try to do everything as a, as a team unit. And so we will have, you know, the collection of the designers, the product managers, the engineers, um, and then you know, the, the other sort of data and research people who are involved, you know, having that conversation and, and trying to think about, about the risk there. And I think having that cross-functional approach is super useful. At the end of the day, you know, from, from a product point of view, the buck tends to stop with product manager, so it's ultimately with them. But we do find a lot of benefit in trying to drive this as a cross-functional discussion. There are lots of different kinds of risks. Yeah. Okay. We will leave it there. Thank you, Lisa. That was that was wonderful as always. Um, really appreciate Thank you, you very taking much. time to share uh, your experience with us um, today at Design Research. Thank you very much.